Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Is anybody there? Hello and welcome, listeners, to episode 86 of Movie Oubliette, the bi-hemispherical podcast with me, Conrad, recovering from the shock of attending a garden party in Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, enduring one day of no gas here in Melbourne, Australia. Oh my. We focus on sci-fi, fantasy and horror films because we love lucid dreaming experiments, magic pencils that can create worlds, and surreally disfigured versions of our fathers chasing us with hand tools. Hello, Dan. Of course. How are you? <laughs> yes, I am good. How are you, Conrad? Yes, I'm very well. Yeah, just as I say, recovering from the shock of being around people, mm. which is really disconcerting. Yeah, yeah. for you. For you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, and down here in Australia, we did have a good handful of months where everything was open, we had no masks, and you could hug and that sort of thing. But we had like zero cases. I think it's a Different story yeah. in the UK. You still have <laughs> quite a few cases. We do. We have quite a few cases, although they're not going up anymore. I think they're sort of plateauing or tailing okay. off. Well, that's good. So that is good, yeah. And luckily we had a sunny day, so we had a staff get-together at work and about 100 people turned up. Right. And we were just outside eating packed lunches, staying a metre away from each other, no hugging, no handshaking, Mm. outside in the fresh air. So it, it, it was okay, I guess. But still, I have to say, I was kind of, <laughs> yeah, a little bit anxious about it. And yeah. Glad when it was over. But, you know, baby steps, I guess. Mm. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, over here, uh, we had a gas inspection. Oh. And they found out we had a leak. So they turned it oh, off no. immediately. <laughs> so we had, <laughs> oh, we had one day. Where, I, where we had no gas in the house, which is our hot water, uh, our stovetop oven, and our heating. Yes, interesting day. Uh, had a very so, cold shower. <laughs> yeah, so cold and eating cold food, presumably. Well, uh, we've got a few other kitchen appliances. We've got a pressure cooker uh, so and a, and a microwave and also a barbecue with, with a gas cylinder. So... <laughs> So we we managed, but uh, yeah, right. We, at least it was only one day, and then the next day we a plumber came and fixed it all and found the leak and back to having heating again. Yeah, which is good because <laughs> it's winter there, isn't it? Right now, <laughs> I mean, it is warming up a little bit, but yeah, it is it is still a bit cold. Oh well, I'm glad you've got that back. So, Conrad, have our listeners been uh, talking to us? They have indeed, yes. A wicked person commented on Sandy King Carpenter's interview about Ghosts of Mars, where she was talking about Joanna Cassidy, and I think she said something about her flying through windows and then added in Blade Runner. 
but Wicked Person didn't get that and said, I love the idea that Joanna Cassidy herself generally flies through windows on a regular basis, <laughs> like in her private life. <laughs> right. I wouldn't put it past her. She's a gutsy lady. I just can imagine her house not having any doors, just windows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because whenever they put one in, you know, they come, the family comes home and it's all shattered. It's like, oh, Joanne. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just can't be trusted. Jason on Ghosts of Mars said, I've always felt this was an underrated film. I'd love for this film to be excavated and reevaluated. And I'm checking out your older episodes. You guys got to do Slipstream and Millennium, both from the late 80s. Mm, so, yes, thanks, yeah. Jason. Interesting recommendations. Yeah, I think I snagged a copy of uh, Slipstream on one of my not-so-recent uh, thrift store explorations. Ah, so, yeah. I'd like to check that out, because I think that was one of Mark Hamill's first films post-Star Wars. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, Luke Skywalker's in there. With a beard looking rugged, if I remember rightly. Okay. Yeah, I mean, mm. I only see him as rugged these days. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's true. It is true. Speaking of rugged, we also heard from Matt Swafford of Reclaimer's Vintage Toys on Reign of Fire, specifically ah, yes. the conceptual artwork we posted by Juan Pablo Roldan, which displayed uh, the main character as being a fireman. And Matt says... I remember first reading about this flick in a coming soon blurb, and I think it was in Maxim magazine or something like that, and they described Christian Bale's character as a fire chief. Oh. Must have been a holdover from an earlier draft, and this pick just jarred that memory loose from my brain. Hmm. I think it would have been a really interesting film if they went that route. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, he does have a scene where he walks through the flames in sort of protective fireman like mm, that's right gear, that's but, right yeah and nick hardy said it was interesting when you talked about how some post 9 11 films had the threat already in the world or under the ground and not from other worlds mm. looking at this painting and seeing a firefighter as the hero really hits this point home. Uh -huh. yes yeah so maybe it was too on the nose maybe that's why they uh -huh. changed it right that does make sense yeah really interesting on your favourite Matthew McConaughey role, Eddie Coulter said, it's hard to choose just one role of McConaughey's that's my favourite, so I had a three-way tie. Lone Star, The Lincoln Lawyer, and Mud. Right. I don't think I've yes. seen any of those. Uh, I've, I've seen The Lincoln Lawyer and Mud. Yeah, Mud's a great film. It's mm. a, uh, I think it was more of a slow burn type movie, much more sort of um, retrospective but I haven't seen it for a while. Lincoln Lawyer was, yeah, that was a really interesting film. It's one of those kind of thriller, loophole-type movies, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. What, like a legal courtroom I think so. Drama. I haven't seen it in a while. Yeah. I could be completely wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. We also heard from Serge of Cold Crash Pictures on Reign of Fire. Of course. Hello, Serge. Hey, Serge. He said, feels like the phrase, so much better than it had any right to be, was specifically invented uh -oh. for Reign of Fire. <laughs> it's got yeah. a silly pitch and an even sillier marketing campaign, and yet I think it's super clever, exciting, emotional, and sports one of my top five favourite lines of all time. I will literally never write a line half as good as, quote, 
Now we can do this easy, or we can do this real easy. <laughs> Which we didn't pick, but it no. is a very good line. Yeah, well, we didn't. Yeah, I, I bet Matthew McConaughey had a good time saying that line. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Uh, he also said, Movie Oubliette reviewed this one this week and it's really the most fun that a listener like me could possibly have. I knew I loved it, but neither Dan nor Conrad had ever seen it and, podcast spoiler alert, they both really liked it. Welcome <laughs> to the fold, fellas. <laughs> yes, I mean, that's, that's the dream for a listener to have both the mm. hosts of a podcast love the movie that they also love. Yeah. And also, it's it's the dream for us. I mean, the reason we did this was not so that we could make fun of terrible movies mm. for an hour. It was so that we could discover things that we haven't seen before mm. and yes. really enjoy them. So. Yes, that's true. So, yeah. I do also like making fun of terrible movies. But <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, there's no situation. downside here. <laughs> Yeah. So thanks, everyone, for getting in touch. We yes. love hearing from you. Yes, we do. Okay, speaking of, Conrad, what are we doing today? Well, let me amble on over here and pull open this hatch. Oh, it's strange. It seems to be like a weird house in the middle of nowhere down here now. Oh, okay. Does it have a chimney? Yeah, but it's really wonky. Let's just go inside. What's that noise? Well, there seems to be a radio, but the station's terrible. Anna, let me in, Anna. Anna. Oh my, I think somebody's trying to come in. She's not here! Oh, I found the movie, I'm coming back. Oh, it's dangerous around here, dangerous! Okay, I'm back. So what do you have, Conrad? So, I have with me the 1988 British dark fantasy film Paper House, directed by Candyman's Bernard Rose. Ah, so this is going to be a childhood nostalgia episode. So this is from your childhood, Conrad? It is indeed, yes. It's from my childhood, so it is... Childhood nostalgia. Yes, fun to be back in childhood nostalgia. It's based on a children's novel, in fact, Marianne Dreams by Catherine Storr, and it stars Ben Cross, Glenn Headley, and uh, the children are Charlotte Burke, and Elliot Spears. Right. And what happens in this childhood movie of yours, Conrad? Well, Anna has an average life for an 11-year-old schoolgirl in 80s Britain. She's estranged from her father, argues with her mum about riding lessons, and gets detention a lot. But suddenly, she falls ill, starts to faint, and begins having recurring dreams that she's visiting a strange, isolated house that she drew herself in class. Mm. After drawing a face at the window, she meets a pale boy her age in the house, Mark, who can't walk and who may or may not also exist in the real world. While convalescing in bed with glandular fever, mono to our US listeners, Anna plots to help Mark leave the dream house by adding her father to the drawing, but scribbles it out and screws up the picture when her mum criticises her drawing technique. Harsh. <laughs> the next time she sleeps, the house is a dark, ruined place, and her disfigured father appears on the horizon brandishing a hammer. As her fever becomes life-threatening, and the distinction between reality and dreams begin to crumble, can Anna and Mark escape the horrors of Paper House? Oh, exciting. It is, yes. And even more exciting, we have a very, very special guest to talk to us about this movie. The director himself, Bernard Rose. Wow. 
Yes. I bet he's got some great details about this film. He does indeed. So, yeah, after the break. Joining us today is an accomplished director who's worked in an impressive array of genres, from the historical romance of Immortal Beloved to the action-adventure of Samurai Marathon, but he's best loved among fans of our favourite genres for helming the milestone horror film Candyman and today's topic, The Dark Fantasy Paperhouse. I'm very excited to welcome Bernard Rose. Hello, sir. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's very kind of you to take the time to speak to us. How have you been doing during these strange times? times that we're living through? Well, actually, you know, I've been kind of busy. I've made a film which is going to open in limited theatrical release in the US in October, oh, wow. which I made with Tony Todd from Candyman, which was a strange little film that we made actually in May of 2020, quite illegally, I hasten to add. <laughs> and it's kind of quite a scabrous little film. It's, <laughs> I, I describe it as a remake of the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie for the coronavirus, but Tony <laughs> plays a Uber driver who's delivering food to wealthy people at the top of Mulholland Drive. And he happens to be delivering people and food to the house of a fanatical kind of Nixium style preacher played by Danny Houston. So oh. bad things happen, as you might imagine. <laughs> I'm sure, yes. What's that called? It's called Travelling Light. Okay. Yeah, and it stars Tony Todd, Stephen Dorff, Danny Houston, amongst others. There's quite a good cast. Wow. Okay. Basically. Well, we're going right back to your very first feature film, I believe. Is it technically your first theatrical feature film? Because you'd, you'd worked on some things for the BBC before, isn't that right? Yes, it's not my first full-length film, but it's my first theatrically released film. I made two films for the BBC prior to that. Mm -hmm. One of them was Smart Money, which was also written by Matthew Jacobs. Ah. And the other one was Body Contact. And it's been completely forgotten. I don't think, I don't even think a copy of it exists anymore. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, it's actually quite difficult to find Paper House, the film we're talking about today. I'm, it's on Amazon Prime in the UK at the moment. So I was able to okay. revisit it. How did you first become involved in the movie? Well, the book was brought to my attention by Anne Tilby, who was the art director on the movie. It, it had appealed to her because. I think the whole idea of the drawing becoming concrete as a sort of visual idea excited her to the extent that she had contacted Catherine Storr, the author, oh. and optioned a book from her and actually gone as far as writing a screenplay. And she got me involved and I was very intrigued by it and I wasn't quite sure why, but I, I wasn't convinced by her screenplay. So I then read the book and I liked the book, but I, again, wasn't quite sure about it. It's a rather peculiar book. It's, you know, it's a, it is a young adult book, like what they would now call a young adult book. Yeah. But it's kind of verging on a children's book, really. Mm. The underlying theme of the book is a kind of coming of age, I guess. But I think it had something very unusual in it that I didn't quite understand. And later when I, I met Catherine Storr, 
And of course, she was herself a child psychologist, and she was married to another very well-known child psychologist called Anthony Storr. So I guess it was something that she knew about intimately from, you know, an analytical point of view. And I think that underpinning of psychoanalysis to the way the dreams are described in their progression is part of what gives the book a kind of universal slightly peculiar appeal. Mm. Anyway, I then wrote a somewhat different treatment based on the book, which incorporated some of Anne's ideas and also things taken from the book. And I then uh, sold a project to Tim Bevan at Working Title. Tim and I were friends at that period because um, Tim was producing music videos. We'd done Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Bronski Beat and um, all kinds of fun early 80s activities. And Tim was wanting to really get into movies very much. And he hadn't made a movie at this point. And I do believe that actually working title, one of the very first things that they actually ever developed was Paper House. It might even have been the very first. Wow. Okay. And it took a while. You know, we hired Matthew Jacobs who was a very good friend of mine from film school and someone I knew was a talented writer. So he liked it very much. And and we hired him to write the screenplay or rather Tim hired him to write the screenplay. Mm. And during that time, uh, Tim got his production arm together more. And, you know, he was starting to have some success because Beautiful Laundrette was very successful, obviously. Mm. All the usual suspects in the British film industry just took one look at the project and went, no. Oh. Because it didn't fit within the purview. You know, the UK film industry has always had basically two things it likes, which is social realism mm-hmm. or literary adaptations yes. <laughs> of classic novels in period. Oh, yeah. But if you're not in those genres, no. And horror has always been a very debased genre to those people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there was no funding in the UK for this film. Nobody wanted it. It was this weird little movie about a little girl who has dreams. And is it a children's film or is it a horror film? No one really had a good answer for that. And actually, honestly, that question was never answered, which is probably why no one ever saw it. (laughs) (laughs) The film was basically saved from oblivion by a man called Dan Ireland, who worked for a company called Vestron Pictures, who were the quintessential late 80s video company who'd made a bundle off of the VHS boom. Mm. And they'd gotten into production. They'd started funding their own films because in that era, being a video distributor and a successful video distributor was being vertically integrated. They were paid like £100 in cash for a VHS tape. I mean, it was a fabulous business. (laughs) So you could fund to a decent level a movie provided it had the right name, the right box, the right genre, you know, a couple of things you had to fit into so it could be stacked in the right shelf. Mm. And Dan, to my joy, just for some reason, he read it and was deeply moved by it and wanted to make it. And he sort of rammed it down Vestron's throat (laughs) and the money came through and, and we were off to the races. Tim and I, and we just made the film. And like I said, it was a very lean period at Pinewood Studios. They were almost closed there was nothing going on there right so we managed to get the biggest stage there for pittance now of course you can't get in there no (laughs) we had the h stage which is the largest proper stage in the main building there and and we built the whole nightmare landscape and everything and we went down to exmoor and built the whole house on the real moor as well 
you know, but I would say the film is 80% shot at Pinewood Studios. Really? Yeah. Wow. And all those big night things, they're all on a huge stage and the painted backdrops and the moor was a set, literally was built and turfed and it was all indoors. Wow. Except I guess for the initial reveal, which is just so strange and eerie when that enormous crane shot where the house seems to grow out of the horizon. That's Exmoor. Right. We wanted to shoot there because it was just this completely featureless landscape. It was just a brown moor Mm -hmm. and a clear sky and you could stick the house on it. And of course, we did stick the house on there, and that was fine. It was just a facade. Right. Uh, except that that was when they had the hurricane in 1987. There was a hurricane blew through the UK. Oh, of course. Yeah. Famous hurricane, <laughs> the one that was not advertised by the weatherman. <laughs> no, poor Michael Fish. The Michael Fish hurricane, <laughs> as it's become known. Yes. Came through and just flattened the set i mean there was nothing that was going to save it sticking there on export you know (laughs) but they put it back up and we carried on but it was one of those oh yes the hurricane's just blowing your set down moments yes (laughs) yeah In terms of adapting the screenplay when you were developing it, did you work really closely with Matthew Jacobs to sort of decide which elements you were going to pull out and which you were going to replace? Because there are some key differences. That's correct. Well, I think the biggest difference was, if you've read the book, Mm. you'll know that the threat in the book comes from these stones that have eyes and move around, basically. And in the pre-CGI era, this didn't feel like a good idea at all. Um, It felt like the sort of thing that was going to look really, really bad. I mean, you do see the stones in the film and, you know, you do feel the menace from them, but they're not driving it. They're not having to do all the lifting work in the nightmare part of the film. So I was very worried about doing them. I mean, it could have been animatronics. I had quite a lot of experience with animatronics because I worked on Dark Crystal for Jim Henson back in 1980, but I also knew what its limitations were. Yes. And so it was a question of finding what could replace those things. And it was Matthew who came up with the idea of making the father the antagonist, basically, Mm -hmm. in the nightmare, a nightmarish version of her father, which is sort of what the stones are anyway. Although I wouldn't really like to speak for Catherine, who's no longer with us, but I think she was a strict Freudian. Okay. And obviously the stones are phallic. I mean, actually, I do remember Catherine's talk coming onto the set at Pinewood and seeing all these stones and going, oh, she said, I wrote a very sexy book. (laughs) (laughs) She didn't mind that change. I know. She regarded the film as very different from the book, quite rightly. I mean, and that's the fundamental difference. But I think although it's different in terms of how it's depicted, It's not different thematically to what she was after. The choice of the father as the antagonist is quite interesting because there isn't that much of a sense in the movie that Anna is afraid of her father. In fact, she expresses the fact that she misses him. I think he works away from home. That's right. But she does say something about not liking him when he's drunk. That's right. Is there a sense that there might be some violence in the house? Well, I think so, because that's the whole point of the big jump scare when she's taking the picture of him and he's smiley and then suddenly he's not that there is an implication of some buried bad memories in there yeah yeah i mean absolutely it's part of it the movie focuses on uh, as many fantasy films do on a, a girl on the cusp of womanhood yes anna is so definitely depicted as being on the borderline she's trying on makeup she's asking about snogging boys but she still wants to play hide and seek and charlotte burke brings her to life so vividly 
and so naturalistically. She's got much more of a hard edge than, say, like a Grange Hill character. Was it difficult to find her in a casting process? It was terribly difficult to find her. And, you know, we went through many, many, many kids of different kinds. And, and yeah, and then it is that thing of the, them being on the cusp, but so difficult. And also, I think she's meant to be 11 in the film, but the advantages of casting a 13-year-old are massive in terms of the number of hours they can work. And she's in every single scene. I think we've kind of worked out that it was impractical to make the film with an 11-year-old. Right. Because we just couldn't work them enough hours. <laughs> I mean, it's quite strict, you know. Yeah, And there's a big difference between 11 and 13, also in terms of anybody's development. So I was terribly happy when we finally found Charlotte, like at the 11th hour, because Charlotte was 13, um, but she looked 11. Mm. And she still had the heir of an 11-year-old. Yeah. And also I think that one of the things that was great about her is that she was kind of a little bit androgynous. And I think that really helped the part too. And she was feminine, but she was never girly. You know what I mean? She was mm. interested in those things like the makeup and the boys, but not only as an intellectual game, you know? And I think that that was kind of... <laughs> It gave her a really interesting quality. And I think a lot of kids, very unusual for a kid in a movie, you know? Yeah, definitely. Well, she is a very engaging presence and she does have a lot on her shoulders if she's in every single scene. And it was very difficult for Charlotte, who, who was not a professional actor and who has never been in a film since. No. Not one. Did something happen that put her off forever or was it just one of those things where it didn't translate to adulthood? I, don't I know. mean... I think the short answer is she didn't want to do it oh. after that. I think it did put her off. <laughs> I think it's exciting if you're that age and your cast is the lead in the film. Mm. But then I think once she actually started doing it, 13-year-olds are not used to that kind of sustained pressure and workload in that she was in every morning at 6 a.m. And I think she had no clue how to cope with that. And I think that she became tired mm. and i think that the film itself started to affect her especially we shot the stuff outside first and and the stuff on the locations and we ended up in the studio doing the night stuff and the, all the nightmarish bits were the last things we did and by the time we got to that honestly the set was huge and it was vast and and there was ben cross on the hill with his hammer <laughs> and i think he scared her <laughs> yeah. in fact i know he did at one point he terrified her and she refused to come into the set because <laughs> oh, no. she was afraid <laughs> and you know and she but she was a tough kid and she got angry with me that time because i think it was when he comes in and smashes through the glass and she didn't know the glass was prop glass and sugar glass she didn't know he was coming I was just going to capture her reaction. And indeed I did, but I think it genuinely frightened her and she got upset and she called me into her dressing room and she said, if you spring anything on me again, I'm out of here. And I was like, oh, Charlotte, please, I'm so sorry. And I was frightened, you know. I mean, she was tough. She's a lawyer now. Really? Okay. I haven't spoken to her in a long, long time, but I did have a conversation with her in, in the 90s. Mm -hmm. She just said that she'd seen the film as an adult and that she was very proud of it and she was very happy to have done it. Yeah. I mean, of course, um, what happened to Elliot, um, the little boy, is much more tragic 
I mean, I think Charlotte is, as far as I know, she's doing well. Yeah. Mm. You mentioned Elliot. Yes. By contrast, he seems much more of a, a natural, not overtrained. He'd been in Jim Henson's The Storyteller. Afterwards. Afterwards, okay. Yeah, because I, like I said, I knew Jim at that period very well, actually. And Jim saw the movie and cast him from my movie. So. Really? Okay, yes. that's the order. Yeah. But I mean, he seems like a natural. I mean, he's so hauntingly memorable as Mark, the mysterious boy in the window. Yeah, I think it's really a tragedy what happened to Elliot because I think he was a very talented actor. He was an actor, you know, and he took it very seriously and he was trained and ah, okay. I think his parents were actors and he was just really into the idea of being an actor mm. in a way that Charlotte wasn't. Yes. And so they were a little bit at odds in terms of their style like that. Yeah. And did they have a good relationship on set? Because one thing that they have in the film that they don't quite as obviously have in the book is a romantic spark between them. Yeah. That even leads to a kiss at the end of the movie. It does. Which when I think about it, is so utterly wrong it's good but it sort of pays off what she said asking for at the beginning i think it's an experiment mm. but then i think the trouble is is that she does feel romantically i mean i don't think it's really a romance but i think she sort of falls for him that's sort of the point yeah but um no is the short answer they fought <laughs> each other but that's pretty typical kids that age yeah boys and girls <laughs> are not really big fans of each other at that age i don't think no and they were very nervous about doing that scene and i only did it once and that was enough it was enough for everybody <laughs> <laughs> Glenn Headley, who plays Anna's mum, yes. obviously an American actress, one of the things that I do find jarring watching the film is it's pretty apparent that her, all of her dialogue has been looped. Yes. Why was that? And who is it? Well, no, she, she looped it herself. Okay. She didn't do it that way when we shot it. She did it in her own voice. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it was better. It felt more natural. But when the film was finished, the people at Vestron who were Dan's bosses to say that they loathed it would be an understatement. They were like, what is this piece of shit that we've paid for? Oh. So, you know, when people get into that kind of flop sweat, they're looking for things to change that they magically think will fix it. You know, the 80s was the era of let's revoice. For some reason, that became one of those default fixes people went to. And they thought the problem was, was that why is this American woman with the British family. Well, of course, well, why not? It's not really that surprising. So they were like, no, she, she has to be revoiced. So I did revoice her. I mean, I can, I don't mind saying this now because Glenn very sadly also passed away a couple of years ago. Yeah. Quite prematurely. Yeah. So I, actually, Francis Barber came in and looped her. And that version is more successful. But Glenn got wind of this and quite rightly, violently objected and said, no, you have to let me try and do it myself. So she came in and redid it herself. And she she did, I think she did, a, you know, a sterling job for what is very difficult to do. Yeah. So we ended up using that. But the version with Francis's voice, which I have a print of, which I screen sometimes, is better. Uh -huh. I'm sure that, you know, if somebody make, wants to come out with a special Blu-ray edition, 
those deliverables exist ah. in an easily transferable form. Heads up, Arrow Video or Scream Factory or exactly one of those outfits. Yeah, we're talking about sound, the film score. Yes, you were working with Hans Zimmer from the period when he was being mentored by the British composer Stanley Myers. Well, Stanley worked on the film too. Yes. Yeah. How did that come about, and what was it like uh, working with the two of them? What were you after? Well, I first met Hans. Actually, I think I first met him through Trevor Horn when I was doing. Of course, he was in a band with Trevor. He was in the Bugle. Everyone forgets. Of course, yeah. Video killed the radio star. I didn't quite know Hans from his Buggles days, but I knew him not long after that when he was working with Stanley in Lily Yard in um, Fulham. I I liked Stanley very much, and he was working on the score for Smart Money. I needed some stuff that was more modern and more sound designy, and Stanley was like, "Uh, you know, really, that's going to be much better for my assistant Hans. I was like, (laughs) okay. So I started working with Hans. And Hans was doing some cues, some sound design. It's funny to think of it now, but yeah. And we got along, and he was always a very super charming guy, Hans. And when it came to doing Paper House, because I'd enjoyed working with Stanley so much, I hired Stanley to do the score. And Stanley did the score. He did the full thing on his own, actually without any involvement from Hans, because I think he really liked the movie. And he and I had worked on it together so that it was all going to be based on um, Foray's Requiem. Yeah. And actually, I think the score was very effective, if you want the truth. And uh, it was much, much, much lower key. And the movie was a lot more silent. It was much more lightly scored. There were long periods without music. I wanted the film to be very atmospheric and almost silent. And um, this was one of the things that Vestron just, fucking loathed about it and they said more music please so I went back and Stanley was busy and I said to Hans what are we going to do and Hans was like don't worry I'll do it for you (laughs) so and it was literally Hans on his own in the studio nobody helping him at all and he programmed the whole damn thing but Hans had in Liliard he had um he had the original Moog from Wendy Carlos oh wow on the wall it was just a bunch of switches. It was huge. He still has it in LA. He had it shipped over here. Yeah. It's very valuable now. I think it's historic. And it was Wendy's thing that she wrote Clockwork Orange on. God knows how. <laughs> so we, I, I wanted to play with that because it was such a, an iconic piece of machinery. So we set it up to do some crude riff and it, and it had flaws in it because it was old and it didn't completely work anymore. And I, I wrote a little stupid thing that's in the car sequence with Hans. But Hans, the rest of it was all Hans on his own on the Synclavio. And, and, you know, Hans was really wanting to take opportunities to show what he could do, you know, and how he could make something grander and bigger. And, and he did that and he added quite a lot to the movie. It changed the movie. I don't actually love all of it. I love some of what he did. I love the first theme and and I love the really nasty parts of it that he did. But the end title cue, which was even, we'd already done it and delivered it and finished it. And they were asked us to go back and redo the end title cue. We used to have the last piece of the Foray Requiem over that, which was a lot less bombastic. So they were after so much bombast that by then, Hans and I were kind of almost making fun of it and going, okay, let's just make the most ludicrously bombastic thing you can imagine. (laughs) And indeed it is. Yes. And of course, Hans came to Hollywood and no bombast was too much bombast. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, yeah. Now it's time for Random Trivia. So for trivia, Mr. Rose, while we have you, 
there's something I've always wanted to ask. The radio in the paper house. Yes. What is that ungodly noise coming out of it? Good question. <laughs> yeah, good question. The answer is unpleasant, unfortunately. It's actually uh, Nigel Holland found this thing and I was like, oh my God, that's brilliant. What's that? It's terrifying. It was Hitler. Really? Wow. It's a recording from the Nuremberg rallies. Wow. It's Hitler and, and the sort of, is all the crowds cheering him. Ah. But it's processed, and I think it's backwards, so you can't pick out any German words. But if you listen to it, it's got that sort of Hitlerian um, delivery to it. Yeah, it sounds awful. It does. Yeah. It's awful, and it's aggressive, and it's angry, and it's Hitler. Wow. So there you go. There you go. That's a fascinating piece of trivia. <laughs> yes. Neither the book or the film ever resolves the question of whether this is entirely a fantasy on Anna's part mm -hmm. or whether this is a, in some way related to reality and whether you thought about her and Mark meeting in real life, perhaps. I, I, yes, I think that would have been a disaster. Right. To have them meet in real life. I think, yes, you don't know, of course, whether it's entirely her fantasy or not. But one of the interesting things that the film plays with is that within a movie a dream and a reality are exactly the same that's one of the odd natures of movies and that's usually why dream sequences in films can be so awful because <laughs> essentially everything in a film is a dream it's not real you know and there is literally no difference between a shot of somebody that's in so-called reality and a shot of somebody that's in a dream i mean it's the same it's that both situations are just as fake and it was very apparent when we were shooting because it, it was mostly a studio film. And one of the things that I was very happy to play with is like when you see her, the stuff in her bedroom, quite obviously the views out of her window are not real. Mm -hmm. They're translite photographs. So in, in a sense, from an expressionistic point of view, the entire film is, is completely from her point of view. So anything that she knows about Mark or not Mark or her doctor or her mother or her father, it's entirely subjective and i think there's no other possible way to interpret it so what parts of it are objectively true couldn't tell you and i don't know really yeah none of it i guess and i think that's the thing that's probably quite bewitching about the film and makes it so memorable for those who were lucky enough to catch it first time around or who have discovered it since I think that is the element. And I'm wondering if that's something that either led to you being involved in Candyman or if it was something that you brought to Candyman because that again plays with hypnosis and a breakdown in reality in a way that has deeply disturbed viewers ever since. No, that's right. And I played with some of the same things in Candyman in as much as Helen's apartment is a set yeah and the view outside the window of cabrini green and the south side of chicago is a translate it's not real it's they're in a studio and the whole interior of the apartments in cabrini green that match hers these are all sets too and there is the sort of dark mirror version of the apartments in cabrini and her apartment in sandberg village in Candyman are very similar to the idea of the confluence between Charlotte's bedroom and the house on Exmoor, you know. Yeah. Or the house inside H stage at Pinewood. Yeah. Well, it's an absolutely spellbinding movie. How do you look back on it now? What do you think its legacy is? What really shocks me is the film is now 34 years old. Yes. And when I was born, 
Battleship Potemkin was 34 years old. <laughs> and if I think about films from when I was born in 1960 to Battleship Potemkin, well, that's a very big difference into even what constitutes a film between those two moments. Yes. Any film that's even slightly remembered after that length of time is a small miracle, I think. Mm. But it has been very influential on our films, I think. Yes. In a number of different instances of people who've said that they were influenced by it. Right. The biggest one is um, Pan's Labyrinth. Yes. It's almost a remake. Yeah. And then there was a film that uh, Neil Gaiman wrote called Mirror Mask, which I probably could have sued him for. (laughs) (laughs) And also, I think um, The Lovely Bones. There's some direct rip-off of Paper House in The Lovely Bones. But look, I think it's fine. Yeah. Well, I think Peter Jackson has actually acknowledged the debt to Paper House. I think Del Toro did too. Yeah. There are things in Pan's Labyrinth that are direct copies. The drawing and the reality, the monster with no eyes, you know. Yeah, for sure. Obviously, the films are very different in tone. Yeah. But I think you can see the seeds in there and how the film has affected people. And I think it is a film that stays with you once you've seen it. Certainly, speaking for myself, I caught it on television as a child in the 90s and it's stayed with me ever since. So it's been a real thrill to speak to you about it. Thanks so much for taking the time to share your memories of it. Well, thank you so much. It was lovely to talk to you. Okay, bye for now. Bye-bye now. And we're back. Oh, that interview with Bernard Rose. Amazing. Yes. I'm so sorry you couldn't be there. Yes. But I think you had a very good reason why you couldn't oh, be yeah, there. Yeah, I just had the first jab and I was having some uh, rather troublesome <laughs> side effects. Yeah. Yes. Your immune system definitely noticed the jab. So mm. that's good. But yeah, not great for interviewing famous directors. Yes. It was a <laughs> tedious 48 hours recovering from that. Yeah. But you did a great job, Conrad. Thanks for filling in. Yes. And getting all those juicy details. Well, yeah. And it was a pleasure because this is a film that I remember watching in the 80s as a kid. I think I caught it on TV, Mm. probably not the year it came out, like a year or two later. And it just stayed with me. It certainly made an impression and watching it again as an adult is very interesting. So you hadn't seen this film at all. No, never even heard of it. Right. So yeah, watching it for the first time, my immediate thought in like the first, I don't know, 10 minutes was... Wow, this is definitely a film for Conrad. <laughs> it's got an, an outcast child mm-hmm. uh, disappearing into a fantasy world. Tick. That's really dark. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Conrad, all over <laughs> It is, yeah. It's obvious why this resonates with me, isn't it? Yes. So. And there's also a character called Mark as well. So Very uh, true. That's something. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yes, I am christened Mark, although it's not my preferred name. I prefer my middle name Conrad. Mm. So yeah, that's true. Because the, the only film growing up that I had a character with the same name was The Crowdy Kid. So of course, <laughs> The Crowdy Kid was one of my favourite movies. <laughs> yeah, not a bad one to pick actually. I watched that recently and it still packs an emotional wallop when mm. he finally wins. Mm. I do love underdog sporting movies. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, going back to Paper House, it's an odd film because it's quite hard to categorise because it is a fantasy film, but it's not... Like, it's like an imagination fantasy. She's not actually going into another world where there are creatures. It's not like Narnia or 
never-ending story or something like that. It's totally in her head. It is. I guess. Yes, it's no surprise that the author of the original novel was a child psychologist. Ah. So, yeah. Right, right, yeah. There are moments towards the end where you think, hang on, maybe it is real. Yeah. But then, yeah, it does kind of have that balance of like... You're not sure whether it's real or not. Yeah. The ambiguity is good. In fact, the the odd thing about the movie is that in the third act, it deviates from the source novel by having something that is empirically sort of in both Mm. the dream world and the real world. Like she actually finds a note from Mark by a lighthouse in the real world. Mm. They don't actually meet. Bernard said in the interview that would have been a disaster having them meet in real life but the book maintains this ambiguity of is she actually interacting with another human being in her dream or is he just her sort of mm. imaginary version of him yeah um i kind of wanted them to meet in real life i thought that was gonna happen did you yeah i kind of Aww. thought oh that would have been kind of sweet but then he would have died yeah spoilers sorry <laughs> so maybe too depressing Hmm. but we can get into the ending in a little bit but yeah i would like to talk about some other similar kind of films that this did remind me of a lot of terry gilliam films Hmm. so baron munchausen and time bandits and tidelands brazil as well but it also did remind me a lot of the whole yes they go into that the whole world and then there's also a isn't there a stepfather or father yeah. figure that is like abusive as well monstrous that? yes yeah. i'm not sure whether that part of paper house was convincing hmm. the father being the villain in the dream i didn't understand that no it's odd isn't it because anna herself She's estranged from her father. I think there's a reference to him working on oil rigs. So he's away from home a lot. Right. So she doesn't have a very strong bond with him. She does make a reference to him drinking. Okay. And I asked Bernard, you know, are we hinting towards alcoholism and possibly abuse here? And he says definitely yes. So there is something there. But I think generally what Catherine Storr was doing in her book and what Bernard Rose has picked up on here is that it's it's always a fantasy where it's a girl who's prepubescent, who's just on the cusp of young adulthood mm-hmm. and who discovers this fantasy world that she creates for herself. It's very interesting that boys tend to go on a quest and defeat something, whereas women, young girls, tend to create entire worlds Mm. and have more of an emotional growth. That's true. Um, In these fantasies, I'm thinking about things like Labyrinth and Return to Oz. Pan's Labyrinth. Yes, Pan's Labyrinth very much. Yeah. Yeah. Even Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, It is definitely less of a quest to find the golden whatever, to defeat the whatever, and more of a journey to just find yourself or find your way home. Yes, exactly. And particularly in this one, it's all about, well, a number of things. I think she's afraid of the masculine. I think that's what the father kind of represents. It's sort of this uncertainty about boys and men generally. So the father is the monstrous version of that and the incapacitated pale boy in the window is a safe, idealised, romantic version of men that she can kind of cope with because he can't walk. Um, (laughs) So 
I think that's kind of what it's toying with. So she sort of ah, takes her first tentative steps into a romantic life, but she's also aware that men are threatening, they're scary. So mm. it's kind of playing on both of those aspects. Um, in all of these fantasy movies for kids, it tends to revolve around them discovering that they're not the centre of the universe, that their actions have consequences. So it's sort of in the midpoint of the movie where she destroys the picture that mm. she realises it has consequences for somebody else, or she thinks that it does anyway. Yeah, She thinks yeah. that it makes Mark ill. So she starts to care about somebody else more than herself, which is a turning point for kids, I think. Yeah. So yeah, it's all about coming of age. Yeah, it definitely is a character arc for Anna because at the start she is... Sport little shit. (laughs) (laughs) She's not the most likable character. Very unlikable. I mean, she gets in trouble at school. She lies about fainting. And then all she wants to do is horse ride and Mm. have everything given to her. And she complains about being sick in bed. And it's, I don't know. It wasn't until the second viewing that I got the character arc, but... It's not hugely obvious. Like, she isn't, like, immediately likable by the end. No, she's not. And I think it is. It's just that seesaw of learning that, A, other people exist, and B, their feelings matter, Mm. which is a struggle for kids because they're so used to having everything done for them and everything being about them that suddenly when it isn't, they throw a hissy fit. Mm. So it's only Mm. really around about the time that she destroys the painting and goes into the world and finds Mark there on the bed and she thinks that he's dead, but he's just faking. That's the only time the two of them have a tender moment between each other where they're actually caring for each other. Mm. Because even the beginning of their relationship, it's typical boys and girls at that age. They don't like each other, really. Yeah, It's quite antagonistic. Yes. I did like the uh, portrayal of her as a girl, though. She's not your typical girl. Mm. And she's not exactly a tomboy either. Because I often find with books from sort of older books, like Enid Blyton books, you could only give more courageous traits to a girl if they were a tomboy. Yes. (laughs) Which made them not a girl, really. Yeah. They were essentially a boy. And But in this movie, she isn't a tomboy. Like, she wants to put on makeup, she wants to snog boys, Mm. but she isn't in a dress. She's in pants and, like, a button-up shirt. She isn't depicted as being a really girly girl. No. So she's kind of, yeah, toying with the idea of being interested in boys and wearing makeup, but at the same time is asking her friend to play hide-and-seek with her. So she's sort of in between. And then when it comes to a situation where she's under threat, she is... Active. I mean, she's not just shrieking and running away. She is working against him, blocking the door, you know. Mm. And for a very young actor who'd never worked in anything before, I thought Charlotte Burke did a pretty good job. Yeah. It's quite naturalistic. Uh there's one scene, but I'll save that for the movie, please. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. What was a little bit awkward or maybe unnerving for me was how young she is. Yeah. She just seems so young to be interested in boys. And that scene where they kiss, I just felt a bit like, oh, I don't know. Should they be kissing? It's like a proper kiss. I know. It's not the kiss <laughs> you're expecting, is it? Because it's like tongues and it's going on for a long time. I mean, mm. I don't know about you, but me at that age, it was just sort of, if the lips touched, it was pretty daring. Oh, yeah. This feels kind of teenage. And certainly when she's very aware that he is terminally unwell or at risk of dying in any case, mm. she says, I wouldn't want to live if he dies. 
And you think, gosh, that kind of all-consuming love is something I more associate with your teenage years. Yeah, exactly. Uh, she's very mature for her age. She is. Well, girls tend to be, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. So I think, like, character-wise, this film is quite progressive. Hmm. And it's good to see a male character like Mark not be the boy that saves the day. Mm. His character did really remind me of the boy in The Secret Garden. Yes. Who also couldn't walk. Yes, I thought that. And she finds in a room. Yes. (laughs) Elliot is so bloody good in this movie. I mean, he is clearly a natural actor. Yeah. And it's such a shame that we didn't get to see him grow up into the fine actor that I'm sure Mm. he was going to become. Yeah. At least we have this performance to remember him by, so... Mm. Actually, come to think of it, Mark does save the day, doesn't he? He does. The hammer to the face. Yeah, he does, yeah. He <laughs> takes out the villain, yeah. Yeah, but I feel like it's not the typical heroic save. I feel like it's a last resort sort of save. Yeah, and it feels like the two of them are working together. Yeah, I did like the connection between dream and reality as well. So when the father figure is bashing on her chest, she's actually getting resuscitated. Yeah. She's passed out in real life. Or the scene where she's ripping out the father from the picture by just pretending she's lying down and then in reality she's reaching out and yeah it was yeah i really like that connection yeah i really like all of the stuff where they're exploring the dream world and what you can do in it and what you can bring back into the real world and certainly the idea of meeting somebody else in your dream is something that i've always found fascinating so that's why i liked nightmare on elm street 3 Mm, a lot dream warriors where they're coming together and fighting Freddy together in a shared dream. And I think there are a lot of similarities. There's a scene where she's in the bath and she gets attacked by Isn't her. Isn't she having a dream of her father, taking a photo of her father, and then... He lurches towards her yeah, and... Lunges forward. Yeah. Yeah, I was watching it with my wife and my wife got a huge fright. Did she? Yeah. That's it's disturbing. a very effective scare because you don't expect it. There are a couple of things about this movie that I think stayed with me for very good reasons. One, because it keys into childhood fears really well. Mm. So just the idea of an adult being changeable really disturbs children. Like you can have somebody who is happy suddenly turning angry and violent. That kind of inconsistency really freaks children out. And as well as that, just the way that the film represents the experience of childhood illness and being so completely delusional in a fever, that whole thing where reality breaks down and you can't tell which is real and which isn't. Mm. And it can be so potent and so vivid. I thought this tapped into those things really effectively. Mm. Like being so frightened of a nightmare you just had that you don't want to go back to sleep. Yeah, and not recognising your own family and being afraid of them because Mm. you've sort of transposed your dream onto them. And yeah, all of that. It's very good. It's a really good device and they use it really effectively in this movie. Yeah. Can we talk about the ending with the helicopter I don't think it worked. (laughs) I don't know whether that metaphor really worked for me. It just seemed a little bit hokey and silly. The helicopter as angel, I guess, or transport to the other world. I don't know. Yeah. I can understand why they did it. Probably very easy. Just hire a helicopter, do a flyover. (laughs) Don't have to animate anything. No weird flying creatures or anything like that. I'm not sure what the ending was like in the book, but... Okay. I don't know. It made the ending a bit silly. 
Oh, that's a shame. I quite like it. It's not how the book ends at all. The book ends with Mark surviving and Anna hears about that, but she never meets him. And so the ambiguity is retained as to whether they've had the shared experience or not. Oh, right. He survives. He survives, yeah. I wish that was the ending. Yeah, I know. I don't know. Catherine Stahl, the author, it was said in her obituary that she didn't much care for the film and hated the ending, which she thought was, quote, totally wrong, unquote. Yeah. So, yeah, I can understand that. I thought how they conveyed it as well with the helicopter and then Anna just yelling, I can't reach! And then Mark just yelling, it's not safe. I just like, what is going on here? Like, I don't know what they're trying to put across, but I don't know. I can't even explain it. It just didn't seem to have a strong message in what they were trying to say. I mean, I guess Anna was trying to be with Mark and trying to get into a helicopter, but I don't know. Yeah, (laughs) it's an odd ending. And certainly I think this movie does have third act problems. And selling it as a horror film, as I kind of do, like a childhood gateway horror movie, isn't almost true either because the horror happens in the climax of the second act. Mm. And then you have a different movie, which is this strange, melancholy, wistful holiday Mm. culminating in Anna almost committing suicide, I think. But it's not really clear exactly what's going on there and it kind of feels aimless it feels like the energy has drained out of the movie after the climactic battle in the world of paper house it just draws out the end yeah and holy crap precarious was that actually her on the edge of the cliff i wanted to ask him that and i forgot i don't (laughs) think it is looks dangerous yeah i think looking at the (laughs) hd print of it that's available on amazon prime at the moment i think that is an adult wearing her clothes oh okay i don't think you put an 11 year old at the edge of a cliff (laughs) oh i don't know it's the 80s well (laughs) low budget films (laughs) i don't know after the whole thing with john landis on the twilight zone i don't think anybody's doing that kind of thing anymore Mm -hmm. so yeah shall we talk about the production design yes love the house i love the fact that the walls look like they're made out of paper Mm. I love that when she draws an object in real life and it appears in the house, then the scale and the accuracy of her ability to draw things affects how they come out. And things not coming out quite as she envisioned as well. So she tries to draw legs on Mark and it's just a pair of legs. Yes. Nothing else, just standing on the stairs that just shatter. Yeah. And the ice cream machine that she forgot to draw cones. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love that. They can't have the ice cream. I love the setting as well. I mean, that shot when she first wakes up in the barren field with the Mm. horizon that goes on forever and the camera cranes up impossibly high and the house seems to grow out of the landscape. I mean, it's just astonishing, bizarre, entirely practically achieved imagery. Yeah. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, and Bernard mentioned that it was just a facade as well. It's not even a real house. It's just the front and sides of a house. Yes. Amazing work on the design to make Mm. it look exactly like her drawing. Yeah, and the interesting thing that Bernard was talking to me about after we'd finished recording, which was a shame, but he was talking about how it's odd that when he was um, auditioning the kids, he asked them all to draw a house and... He said they all drew this kind of house and that we all do that. We all draw this isolated house with the three windows and the door and the chimney and in the middle of nowhere. And yet none of us live like that. 
So <laughs> why is this the way that kids represent their idea of home? And he thinks that it's sort of psychologically significant in some way, that it's more a representation of us. Mm. But nothing about it is cute and cuddly, is it? It's all a little bit peculiar yeah. and disturbing, but you don't quite know why. I think as well why paper houses set apart from other sort of fantasy worlds that kids go into in, in other movies and other stories is they're always like whimsical and bright and happy and like, oh, this is mm. quirky and odd looking. But even her first visit to the dream house, it's not exactly pleasant. It's not a nice looking house. It's a big grey edifice. Yeah. yeah. And when it descends into the nightmare part of the dream, and the house is completely run down and looks like it's been bombed in the war yeah. um, and everything is broken. It did remind me a lot of the movie What Dreams May Come. Right. I haven't seen that. In that movie, so they're in heaven, but he's gone to retrieve his wife and she's in hell, but she's in the house that they lived in, but it's the hell version of that house, so it's all run down and right. disgusting and dirty. It's very, very similar to this. Yeah. But obviously, What Dreams May Come came out like 15 years later. Yeah. So I really liked how they used the same space and changed it, and it became a different space in doing so. Yeah, and all of it very much Anna. So when she's looking at the photograph with her mother, she asks her to let it develop so that the clouds are darker because she likes darker clouds. Mm. And it's exactly the same in the world that she creates in the dream. Mm. It's all very much coming from her. Yeah. And what about the music? What did you make of Hans Zimmer, a young Hans Zimmer, just about yes. at the time when he was cutting the umbilical from his mentor, <laughs> Stanley Myers, right. the British composer? Admittedly, I don't know about Stanley Myers. I had never heard of him before. No. But he taught one of the greatest film composers of modern cinema. Yeah. I mean, it was fine in this movie. It was... They used the synclavier, is that right? Yeah, you can tell. So modelled off real instruments, but played on a synth. Yeah. Yeah, it sounded very MIDI. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? I'm not a fan of that. I'm not yeah. a fan of that at all. Usually I am, but this sounded like it was trying to sound like an orchestra, and it just didn't quite pull it off I don't think no this is I mean I've talked about this before I love synths to sound like synths so I like the sort of analog stuff from the early 80s by people like Jean Carpenter and the stuff that they do on Stranger Things now synths sounding like synths exploring completely new soundscapes whereas this mm. midi orchestra thing I'm not a fan of yeah I wish he'd kind of gone in a different direction and I don't know about you but I didn't find any memorable themes in this movie there were a few that I picked out, but yeah. nothing that really stood in my mind. Well, the main theme that plays over the end credits, which is kind of like a love theme, mm. I really do like, actually. I find that quite earwormy. I've listened to that. I have the soundtrack album, and I right. know that theme quite well. It's very boisterous over the end credits, which was a deliberate choice by the director and the composer after Stanley Meyer's more dour compositions, which were with a real orchestra and were all based on Foray's Requiem, right. which is still in the movie in a few places and very effective where it appears. Is. All of that was thrown out because the distributor Vestron didn't like it. Yeah. Which is a shame. Yeah. I would have liked to have seen the other version. Yeah, I would have too. So is all the foray stuff, all the choral 
music in this film? Yeah. Right. So that's all Stanley Myers. And I love that stuff, like the scene where Anna's mother's carrying her up the stairs and in her dream she's floating up the stairs in the paper house and it's all Mm. adaptations of Foray's Requiem, which was, as far as I understand it, notable at the time it was composed because most Requiems tend to have a lot of blood and thunder and clothes-rending anguish, (laughs) whereas his piece is more sort of calm and accepting and it's more of a release. Oh, okay. And I think that's sort of thematically important in Paper House. Mm. And I think it's lovely when it's used, and I do recognise those themes. Yes. But the score as a whole is patchy. I don't like the Mickey Mousing bits, like when the father's attacking, there's lots of bits where like he's ramming the door open and every time he does it, there's like an electric guitar stab. Yeah. I could live without that. There's something about the score that I just can't put my finger on that doesn't work. Mm. Like synth and the Sinclair has worked before in movies that we've covered, so I... I just don't know. There's just something about it that just doesn't work. Yeah. Watching this movie a second time, it really does remind me of other films and other literary works. Yeah. So Roald Dahl was brought to mind. Yeah. Many times. (laughs) Because Roald Dahl does also feature a lot of very dark themes. Yeah, that's true. With kids. (laughs) Yeah, and and Catherine Storr was known for this, that she explored fairly dark territory. Mm. It's also interesting knowing that was she a psychologist? Was she her parents were psychologists? She's a psychologist, and her husband was a psychologist as right. well. So, right. because the sort of imagery of the house yeah. in this movie did remind me a lot of paintings, uh, like Van Gogh paintings or Dali, oh, yeah. Magritte or Magritte as well. And those mm. painters had a lot of psychological challenges, shall yes. we say? Yes, and their paintings were reflections of of their sort of mental illness as well yeah visually it's a beautiful striking film it stays with you every shot is very carefully composed Mm. one of the things that i love about the film that i was going to mention how bernard rose makes you feel so uncomfortable during the movie he introduces you into a scene without giving you the wider context right so you will suddenly be in the dark room with anna's mother counting down to herself and you don't know where she is or what she's doing until Anna gets pulled into the room and then you figure out that she's in a dark room and she's developing some pictures. Mm. Or you will cut to smoke going past a window horizontally and you don't know where you are and then the camera will back up and you'll realise that you're on a steam train. Of all things, in 80s England, I don't know how that was possible. (laughs) Just lots of scenes where he will drop you into a situation without having the wider context of knowing exactly where you are. Yeah, that's really intriguing that you've pointed that out because that is a very dream thing as well. Because you will be dreaming and suddenly you're transported to a different location and there's no explanation of you travelling from here to there. You're just there. Yeah. And you have to figure out what's going on. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. It's no surprise he was picked to do Candyman after this because it's just, in terms of reality breaking down, he was an ideal choice. Yes. Looking at Bernard Rose's filmography, he seems to have a deep obsession with Leo Tolstoy. Really? It's like three or four movies that he's done based on his work. Ah, <laughs> gosh. I wish you'd been in the interview. You could have asked him about that. <laughs> yeah. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Movie Awards. OK, 
Tiki, it's the Movie Awards. It's where we present our favourite dark, traumatising fever dream parts of the film in the number of hammer-to-the-face categories. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Best quote. It's pretty difficult picking out a quote I found because most of the dialogue is fairly ordinary and sort of everyday, yeah. I would say. But given that, my favourite line in the movie is from Mark and it's his line... I don't want to go, but the helicopter's been hovering all day. And I know you didn't like the imagery of the helicopter as the the means of transport to the other side or into eternity. But I don't know, I just find that a strangely melancholic and eerie thing for him to say to her in complete innocence. Yeah. And I think that sums up the film quite well. Mm. And you? Yes, so my favourite quote is... It's a bit of a throwaway line, but I thought it was funny. Uh, It's when Anna has skipped school with... um, Is it Sharon? Is that her name? Yeah. Her her friend, and they're they're putting on makeup. And um, Sharon's just told a story about going to a party and snogging a whole bunch of boys. uh, Oh, yeah. And Anna asks her, so what's snogging like then? And then Sharon replies, well, like kissing a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> Which I can imagine that's wow. what it was like at, at age 11. Because n- no, no kids know how to kiss at that age. Well, no, definitely not. Best hair or costume. So this is an odd choice, but I, I'm going to pick the father, or the, the dream father, the nightmare father. And hmm. uh, the fact that they, they present him as just a shadow. So it's not really a costume, is it? It's no costume. It's just the lack of costume. The, the silhouette <laughs> of his shadow is just so, was so well utilized as, as that nightmare um, terror yeah. that uh, I thought was really clever. Yeah, the image of him, there's sort of a, a black outline of the landscape and the overcast sky and just him as this silhouette on the, mm. on the horizon with a hammer. Yeah. It's always stuck with me. Mm. It's a very powerful image. It's horrifying. Yeah. How about you, here in costume? Well, it's all very 80s, isn't it? Let's mm. be honest. Mm. Um, and my personal favourite is Anna's white nightshirt that has big scribbled black letters on it. Yes. Not only because she looks like one of her own doodles come to life, oh, but also yes. because she looks like she's just about to jump into a Wham! video. <laughs> course <laughs> love those 80s clothes mm, mm. most 80s, 80s moment so there were a few scenes where anna's mum they're driving she's smoking in the car and it just brought me oh, yeah. right back to the 80s early 90s of like <laughs> taking a ride with your friend's parents and and the dad or, or someone would be smoking in the car it was just uh, it yeah. really brought me back to my childhood Yep, you after a long journey you'd get out of the car and you would stink. Absolutely <laughs> yeah. stink. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> How about you for eighties? Well the thing that I thought was the most eighties thing about the movie, or that dates it the most, is doctors making house calls. Oh. Because Anna's doctor is visiting her all the time, seemingly just on a yeah, just a regular basis on a whim, just to see if she's all right and take her temperature. Right. Um, yes. Which I remember from my childhood oh. in the 80s 
but I can tell you for certain you could not get a doctor to come to your house if you had a gun to them. Well, uh, I mean, nowadays. now. <laughs> probably well, yeah, be in a hazmat, hazmat suit now. Yeah, they would be. But speaking of that, it is strangely eerie to see the doctor taking a swab from Anna's throat in this ah, movie. Yes, yes. And then putting it in a tube to take away to test. And how familiar we've all come with throat swabs. Mm. Favorite scene! It's difficult for me to pick out a favorite scene. I think the whole horror climax at the end of Act Two is really my favorite thing when Anna's having a seizure and her mind's running wild and the imagery's so disturbing and yet familiar. Just things like her standing in a room full of candles on saucers, mm. which I remember from my childhood that was, you know, if the power went out, then you would have candles on tea saucers ah, right. around the house, just to, and all of them blowing over. And I don't know that all of that sequence leading up to when she's being given CPR on the hill, but it looks like she perceives it as an attack. Mm. That whole sequence I find really thrilling and exciting yeah yeah well i mean my favorite scene was the nightmare scene as well mm. i particularly like the the ground opening up with the lava and, and uh when yeah when the dad is finally uh hit with the hammer and he falls into the lava and he's on fire and then there's this giant fireball that streaks across and blows up the house it's just like wow Really pulled out all the stops for for effects. Yeah. Most cliche horror moment. Well, it's funny that you should mention the man being on fire because as my horror cliche, I've picked full body burn because oh, in the 1980s, yes. everyone had to be set on fire from <laughs> Freddy Krueger to Corporal Frost in Aliens. They all had to be set on flames as part of their, their demise. So mm -hmm. yeah, that was my cliche. That's a great pick. How about you? My cliche, more of a fantasy cliche, but it's the premise of the film. An outcast, mm. misunderstood child disappears into a fantasy world. <laughs> yep. And all sorts of strange things happen because that's every fantasy movie ever made pretty much. It is, yes, and it's why every single child <laughs> growing up feeling a little bit awkward loves them. Mm. Well, certainly I did. Yes. Best special effect! I've already mentioned it many times, but the earth opening up with the lava. Yep. Uh, it's convincing to me. It's mm -hmm. all practical, great use of lights and fog and just a really good effect. It is, and you're not expecting it. The film's been so self-contained mm. and quiet and moody but not sort of violent in this sort of way and then all of a sudden the, the ground starts opening up yeah. and lava starts spilling out so yes. yeah it's a bit of a shock how about you favorite effect uh for me my favorite effect is the house exploding which you mentioned oh, as well right yes i think it's a model but i it's a fairly big scale if it is a model because the fire doesn't look like you know miniaturized yeah, fire right, that's yes, been yes. slowed down but again i wasn't expecting an explosion ripping mm. across the landscape yes. and blowing up the house. Yeah. Really didn't. Favourite sound effect. Well, I know that you don't like the helicopter, but again, I am going to refer to that in terms of sound. And I think it's the scene where Anna has a tantrum and destroys her painting and throws it away. Mm. You hear the sound of a helicopter flying over the house. And it's that sort of slow tension building that leads to, it sort of creates a sonic um, uh, intensity underneath the scene that 
that sort of really complements it well. And it, of course, hints to what's coming at the climax of the movie. Mm. So I actually thought the use of an unseen helicopter sound in that scene was very clever. Mm, okay. Well, my favourite sound effect was just the general approach to sound design for the dreams. Hmm. So when she first goes to the house and knocks on the door in the dream, it's all really reverberant and sounds really strange. And there were other moments during the dream sequences as well where she is talking or or Mark is talking and there's this crazy weird uh, reverb over it as well. It just made it much more believable as a dream yeah and and there's even the first scene where she sees mark in the window and he's talking and you don't hear anything it's just i love that yeah that sort of manipulating sound to make it feel like a dream yeah most funniest moment i didn't think charlotte burke that played anna was that good i mean she was mostly good in the movie but there was one scene in particular where it was just laughable how bad the acting was and it's when she's she's searching for the thrown away drawing that she made and her mum had mistakenly put it in the the trash and she's turning her bedroom upside down and then she goes to her mum mum last night you cleared out my bedroom i threw something away where's the rubbish I've got to find it. It's just the worst <laughs> acting I've ever seen. I don't know. It really took me out of the scene and I was just laughing oh. on the floor. <laughs> I think it's because she's emphatically moving her arms with every single line. And yeah. I think it's dubbed as well. So they've looped it to try and make it somewhat better. But yeah, mm. it's not quite what you'd want. <laughs> yeah, I think as, as well, her mum obviously is dubbed over as well so there's just like all of this yeah bad adr over a scene that's supposed to be quite emotional and distraught but it uh, didn't quite come out like that yeah and funniest for you conrad well for me the bit that made me giggle was when anna is trying to get mark on the bicycle because oh yes yeah (laughs) she stretches his leg backwards at a such an extreme angle And I just looked at it and thought, this is clearly a young girl that does not know how sensitive a boy's groin area is. (laughs) Because poor Elliot Spears, my goodness, that looked eye-watering what she was doing to him Mm. over a bicycle saddle. Mm. I did not understand what they were trying to achieve. Like, why are you putting a disabled boy on a bicycle? (laughs) What is going on here? And that's our move, please. Yes. Hi, this is Jonathan McIntosh of Pop Culture Detective Agency, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. And we're back for final verdict. Should Paper House be set free from its dilapidated nightmare house to be enjoyed by all, or should Mark swing a hammer to its face and let it tumble, set ablaze to the bottom? of the oubliette to be lost forever. Well, Mm. it's 
It's pretty obvious, Code Red, <laughs> but let's hear it. <laughs> Final verdict for Paper House. Yeah, well, this is my childhood nostalgia item. So, And it's one that you know, even revisiting as an adult, I think I can see not only what made it resonate with me as a child, but also as an adult, how I appreciate the craft and the artistry that went into it. It does have problematic elements. The third act, I'm not sure it works particularly. Some of the performances aren't great. The looping isn't great. The music's been compromised as well. But despite that, the potency of what's actually there, the dream imagery, the the thematic concepts, the strength of the, the characters and the relationship between them, I really buy. It still really works for me. It's not perfect, but it's fascinating. And it's certainly interesting to see Bernard Rose's first movie before he was quickly snapped up to do Candyman. Mm-hmm. And I can see exactly why he was chosen to do that movie on the basis of this. So I think it's an important film for you to see if you love Candyman, you love horror movies, and I think you'll get a lot out of it if you do. So yes, I would knock down the father and and set it free from the dilapidated house. Mm, How about right. you? Yes, yes. First time watching this movie. I, it's an interesting film to categorise. It doesn't really fall into horror or fantasy. Mm. It's a kid's movie, but really isn't a kid's movie. It's got characters that are not the cliche characters that you would see in a film like this. I do think it does have problems as well. Mm. The main one being the main character isn't entirely likable at all. I I did feel like this on second viewing, I, I got the character and it has a lot more depth to it. She's not just a sport brat. But yeah, I did love the subtleties with dreams versus reality. Uh, Growing up, I was all about those type of movies, like the blurring of lines between dreams and reality. And Mm. I did have issues with the ending, but helicopters aside, it is a very (laughs) worthwhile movie to watch. And I think the Britishness of it makes it less cheesy. Ah, interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Culturally, it's an interesting artifact, that's for sure. And when you compare it to something like Extro, my goodness, it's a masterpiece. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So you would let this go? I would. I would. Thank goodness. (laughs) Okay. Let me just hook it onto this helicopter. Fly away. So if you want to keep up to date with all the dark and depressing movies we will cover in our future episodes. Uh, Please follow us on all our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Movie Oubliette. And you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. And of course, if you want to support us even more, you can become a patron for a dollar a month. You can get access to all the extended content and for five dollars you get access to the minisode that we release every month on a new movie yes indeed and of course to go along with this episode there will be a full-length version of our interview with bernard rose he chatted to me for an hour Mm. so yeah there's a lot more material in there yes yes and if you want some more material of us you can Mm. buy our merch we're on redbubble (laughs) You can buy a mug or a t-shirt or a tote bag or a clock. 
It's all there. Apparently there are hats now. I'm very <laughs> tempted by the hats. I got an email from Redbubble the other day saying, hats. So, Great. Yeah. <laughs> yep, something to look forward to. Mm. What are we looking forward to next episode, Conrad? What are we going to be discussing? Well, <laughs> we're still in the 80s, but we're over the other side of the pond. And this time we're going to be watching something that's kind of notorious and uh, I've never seen it before. I don't think you've seen it before. Mm. Uh, so it should be very interesting. It is the 1986 American independent horror film, Spookies. I'm guessing ghosts? Yeah, it's some sort of haunted house movie. But I th the sense I'm getting is that it's a hot mess. So it was mentioned to us by Megan Navarro when uh -huh. she appeared on our Halloween episode as a film that we would like to check out. And so Megan is going to return to guide us through the wonder Ooh. of Spookies. <laughs> so right. looking forward to that. Well, I get very frightened at uh, haunting ghost movies, so ready to be not so frightened? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> we shall see. Okay. The glorious 80s. All right, listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode. Stay tuned next time. Bye for now. Goodbye. review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie What's snogging like? Like kissing a vacuum cleaner. <laughs>